Okie dokie. Well, it's um, a pleasure to welcome uh, Fred Turner to our midst. Fred is a long, even though he's an associate professor at Stanford and uh, director of the STS program there, he's actually a long-term uh, MIT person. Uh, deep roots back into the, I think, the 80s, Fred, with yeah. uh, FLNL, um, believe it or not. I was a lecturer in FLNL many, many, many years ago. English is a second language. And then I became a lecturer in Sloan. Um, right. And then at the Kennedy School, where cultural difference was pronounced. And, um, and Fred, I think, is probably best known. Uh, his most recent book is probably is, 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 book, is yeah. really been terrific. And I want to get the title right here, because I refer to it only by the title. Before the colon part, Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Catalog, and the Rise of Digital Utopianism. Mm -hmm. Terrific book, a book that demonstrates a profound understanding of MIT's culture, not to mention the bigger cultural uh, span that the title suggests. It's really, it's really, if you haven't read it, it's a must read. Uh, also author of uh, Echoes of um, Combat, the Vietnam War, and American Memory. Mm -hmm. um, so without further ado, Great. we're going to hear some of Fred's latest work. So. Great. Thank you, William. Um, so it's a little toasty in here. I'm going to strip down for action. Um, excuse me. There, yeah, yep, great. Um, I encourage others to do likewise. Um, within the proper bounds. I can't believe I said that. Um, so it's, it's really great to be back at MIT. And I want to thank um, William. I want to thank Jim. I want to thank the CMS program for having me back. Um, 10 years ago, um, 10 years ago this, this very month, I was a PhD student in the University of California, San Diego, who was employed as a lecturer for Professor Joanne Yates in the Sloan School of Management. And during that time, I feel like I got a sort of second education. And the second education that I got um, wasn't just the traditional communication training that I'd had at UCSD, but was, it, was an education in the sociology of the firm, in the history of the corporation, and thanks to Henry and William, comparative media studies. Um, during my time here, I actually um, helped supervise three CMS theses, including <laughs> David Spitz and Anita Chan, who's now a professor in her own right. Um, and I, I hope that you'll see some CMS approaches in the work that I'm, I'm doing today. Um, to give you a little, little background, William mentioned that my last book was a book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. And it, it was a book that offered a couple of things to me that I couldn't accept when I found them. And one of the things that I couldn't accept is I started rummaging around in all of this countercultural literature. I mean, I rummaged around in the whole Earth catalog. Um, I spent a good year in a back room at Sloan um, thumbing through hippie periodicals, thinking, I've lost my mind. I've lost my mind. The internet is coming, and I'm writing about hippies. What is my problem? Um, so I was back in there, and one of the things that shocked me was that one of the heroes for the hippies I was studying was Norbert Wiener, founder of cybernetics, military industrial researcher. Another hero, Buckminster Fuller. Another hero, Eric Fromm. All of these people are people from a different era entirely, the era of the 1940s and the 1950s. So when I finished that book and I was scouting around for another book, I realized that I needed to kind of go backward in time a little bit and start exploring how it was that the children of the 60s, who I thought were supposed to have overthrown the expectations, beliefs, intellectual systems of the children of the 40s and 50s, found them so attractive as to embrace them and build the counterculture partly around them. So I've been swimming back in the 40s and 50s um, for the last few years. I'm about 2 thirds of the way through a new book, through drafting a new book. I'm going to present a piece of it today. Um, the new book is tentatively called The Democratic Surround how a World War II propaganda campaign brought us psychedelic, the psychedelic 60s. 
why not just go for it? Um, <laughs> you know, titles need to be bigger than the book, right? Um, but but, but I'm gonna, you're going to see a lot of the argument in that book today. And I, I'm going to try to walk, walk you through that. Um, this is only the second time I've talked anywhere except in my own living room about this material. Um, and so, so it's really a work in progress. And, and one of the things that I'm excited about here is that I do have a number of teachers, my teachers, in the room. I have William. I have Joanne. Um, and I'm a little nervous about that. Never mind. You never get over that, no matter how old you get. Um, but I'm actually really looking forward to getting some feedback and some hard-hitting questions that can help me make this better. Um, this work is still in process and good. I also wanted to say that this particular piece I'm going to present today will be coming out um, in February in the journal Public Culture as the, as the lead article in, in that journal um, for the February issue. OK, so let me go in. Um, I figure I'll talk for about 40, 45 minutes. Um, if you have questions of fact as I go through, please just jump right in. But if you could hold the kind of conceptual or analytical questions for later, that would be great. I think we're going to have plenty of time to, to walk through those. Um, so today's talk will have three parts. The first part, I want to answer the question, uh, uh, and it sounds like a deceptively simple question, but it sort of isn't, which is what was the family of man? And embedded in that question will be some other questions about why was it important in its own time, why should it be important in our time? I'm going to make the case that The Family of Man is a photo exhibition that helps pioneer a kind of multi-screen, multi-image, surround mode of media, simultaneously designed to liberate a sensibility formed in response to mass media in the mid-20th century, but also to instantiate a new kind of control, a control through the selection of resources by which we make our identities. And I want to argue, I'm going to give you a, a sort of a prequel of what's coming. I'm going to argue that that mode of liberation and control, those two things together, characterize our own moment, characterize a moment of ubiquitous media. And that's, that's kind of where I'm headed with this. So this is, in some ways, a case from the past with which to think about the present. Second question, where did this show come from? Note the really on the end of the question. Um, there's a, a long canonical story about where the show comes from. It involves heroic intellectual work by Captain Edward Steichen. He always insisted on being called Captain. Um, <laughs> I'm going to undermine a little bit of that story. And then in telling the story about where it came from, I'm going to argue that it has a bearing on the politics of attention in 1950s America and in our own time. Um, might be a good moment to say a word about what I mean by the politics of attention. And we tend to think of po politics, setting Foucault aside for a moment, as something done via debate in the public sphere, um, done via discourse. In this period, and I would argue in our own, but that's a more complicated story. We can get to that a little later. In this period, you have a group of um, political leaders, government officials, social analysts, and artists, all of whom believe two things. They believe that there is something called the democratic personality. It's, a, it's an identifiable type of personality. And they believe that they can build media spaces to help generate and promote that personality. And through it, democracy itself. Um, if this is starting to sound a little like Google, it should. But we'll come back to that. OK. Onward. All right. So what was the family of man? Um, in 1955, it was an exhibition, an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, an exhibition of 503 photographs taken by more than 200 photographers from around the world. It was also an exhibition that a quarter of a million people came to see. 
in the Museum of Modern Art. In its first exhibition, just in three months, a quarter of a million people came to see this. Over the next 10 years, six traveling copies of the exhibition went around the world. The United States Information Agency, which sponsored a lot of those travels, um, estimates that at a minimum, seven and a half million people saw this show. This is arguably the most seen photography exhibition in history. In addition to being an exhibition at the, at the Museum of Modern Art, it became a number of other things in that subsequent decade. One thing it became was the traveling show I've mentioned. And for the purposes of my argument to come, note the heading on the poster for it up there, the show you see with your heart. We'll talk about affect and vision here in a big way. I think those things are going to be really important and highly politicized. Um, it was a propaganda tool. This is South Africa. Um, when it traveled to South Africa, uh, the press just raved. They said, look, if everyone could see this, there would be no more race hate. South Africa would be a different nation because we would recognize ourselves as like our colored brothers. Mm. South Africa. Um, but it traveled all through Europe, traveled through South America. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of its travels momentarily. Finally, it became a best-selling book. This book is still in print. Um, ironically, this book has never had one of the central images of the show in it. Um, one of the central images of the show was an atom bomb exploding. Um, Operation Ivy Mike, the first hydrogen bomb, exploded. Um, and Steichen got a still from the film of that explosion, blew it up um, to about a six foot by six foot size, and displayed it in the museum. That image has never been printed with the book, um, which is, I think, important as we think about what it means to be in a family in this period. Nevertheless, the book is still in print, has been in print consistently since 1955. Um, it sold more than, ready for this number, 8 million copies. That's a lot of books. If you're a person of a certain age in the United States, you undoubtedly had this in your living room. Um, let me ask those of us who are of a certain age in the room, how many of us have seen this book? If you, if you, okay, that's pretty good, all but one. Okay, that's 90%. Um, still in print. The show itself, by the way, is still on display. It's on display in a castle in Clairvaux, Luxembourg, the Clairvaux Castle. And it's mounted, and there's a great curatorial effort to keep it just as it was in its original. That just as, a, as it wasness is important. I'm going to argue that one of the most important things about this show is not the images in it so much as the way that they are arrayed and displayed. I'm going to argue that that's a lot of what's really mattering here. And that's why attention to the design of the show in Clairvaux matters so much. All right, so there's a problem. And the problem is this. In the 1950s, The Family of Man was enormously popular. But starting in the early 1970s, it has become, I, <laughs> without a doubt, the most widely excoriated photography exhibition of all time. This is Roland Barthes, who um, started the ball rolling. Um, it's been called, I, I, just, I just love this image. I am smug. I think thoughts. <laughs> I see things they do not see in the family of man, you know? Yeah, do you mean, he, <laughs> Roland Barthes, yeah. Okay. Um, so he and other very well-known critics like Abigail Solomon Godot, um, Alan Secula, have argued that the show was racist, um, going so far as in, in Abigail Solomon Godot's case to actually not see images that were there. She, she wrote and published an article in which, she published this article, by the way, in 2004, arguing that there were no pictures of white folks and black folks together in the show. That's ridiculous. It's not true. Um, argued that the show is colonialist, 
an effort to colonize the world in the American image, argued that it was an imperial show. Imperial is part of the American imperialist effort. And I think these, um, these critiques stem from two different points. One point is historical. Because the show became a propaganda show sponsored by the USIA and traveling around the world, it was tangled up in people's imaginations with other efforts to, to colonize the minds of those of, of other countries. Maybe fairly, maybe not. But the other piece, though, that I think is really important is this notion that it was a story and that it was a problem because it was a, a, a badly told story, a wrong story. It was a narrative, a narrative that had imagery um, that, that was somehow um, mass cultural and low. Let me give you an example of this kind of criticism. Um, this is Russell Linz writing in 19, 1973. He was a very well-known journalist at the time. And he said, the family of man was a vast photo essay, a literary formula, basically, with much of the emotional and visual quality provided by sheer bigness of the blow-ups and its rather sententious message sharpened by juxtaposition of opposites. Wheat fields and landscapes of boulders, peasants and patricians, a sort of, look at all these nice folks in all these strange places who belong to this family. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so Roland Barthes couldn't have said it better. Um, the point is that this gets imagined as a life photo essay. And I think that misses what was distinctive to the audience at the time and its importance as a historical artifact for our own time. Along with this myth that the family of man was a story comes an origin history, an origin story focused on an author, Captain Edward Steichen. Edward Steichen was, as many of you will, will undoubtedly know, um, an early 20th century advertising and celebrity photographer. He made beautiful portraits of the wealthy, the famous um, in New York in the early, early 20th century. He also did a series of advertising images. Um, if you've ever, well, maybe your life is different than mine, but if you've ever sat in the back of a library admiring um, 1930s, the skin, on the, the skin on the models of the 1930s soap ads. Excuse me, my background is showing. Um, he's the guy who made that, made that look. He gave that kind of beautiful, you know, sometimes hard-edged, sometimes soft-focused advertising look from the 20s and 30s. During World War II, he became an officer in the Navy, hence the Captain Steichen. He was, he was in his late 50s, early 60s at that point, um, headed the photographic division of the US Navy, and went on to become the first photo curator, first head of the photo department at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, and he was in that role in 1955 when he showed this show. Um, during World War II, he did two propaganda shows, and I'll talk about them in just a moment. One was called Road to Victory. Um, the other was called Airways to Peace. In 1951, he did a show on the Korean War. And he always claimed, and others claimed for him in the press, that the family of man was a reaction to his perceived failures with those shows. This is how he explained it. I'll actually quote him here. He said, although I had presented war in all its grimness, three exhibitions, I failed to account with my mission. I hadn't incited people into taking open and united action against war itself. What was wrong? I came to the conclusion that I'd been working from a negative approach, that what was needed was a positive statement on what a wonderful thing life was, how marvelous people were, and above all, how alike people were in all parts of the world. Um, he set off from that intuition um, with Wayne Miller, his assistant, and they went through two million photographs. And these numbers were cited in all the journalistic accounts of the day. They winnowed them down in a small loft in New York City. 
to you know, about 10,000. And then they shrunk them down again to about 503. Um, you know, in Life Magazine, which covered this process, um, in other publications, really ubiquitously covered, Steichen was depicted as a kind of hero of vision, someone who could see the, the unity that human, humanity was and bring that to bear through this massive effort of sorting and aggregation. Okay? In some sense, he was constructed as the author of the human story, a universal human story. And you could see why this would be a problem for analysts in the 60s and in the 80s, which it has been very steadily. Unfortunately, it's not actually where the exhibition came from. I want to tell a very different story now, a kind of different history. I want to make a couple of arguments that um, I don't think have been made often yet. First thing I want to say is that the family of man did not grow up in response first to the Cold War. Now, Steichen certainly wanted to, to, to create an exhibition that promoted human welfare and species welfare as against nuclear holocaust, absolutely. And that's an appropriate thing to have done in 55 in the wake of the Korean War. But his designs, his ideas, the way that he did his work, and ultimately the exhibition itself grew first out of a World War II push against fascism and mass media that was ubiquitous in America but particularly concentrated in New York. Second, that push on the aesthetic dimension drew on Bauhaus aesthetics brought to New York by a series of Bauhaus refugees, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and it aimed to promote the democratic personality, something that was understood quite concretely by psychologists, anthropologists, and sociologists of the day. It aimed very specifically not to contain viewers within, say, a family vision, sort of particularly a heteronormative family vision, as has been claimed by critics of the 60s. On the contrary, it aimed to liberate their senses psychologically and politically. To see how this works, we have to go back a bit. We have to go back to the late 1930s. Um, we have to go back to the late 1930s and to a vision of mass media as literally making mass men. Now, as probably no one in the room knows better than William, I, I get nervous talking about this, William, while you're here. But as no one would know better than you, um, mass media in this period are widely thought literally to pass through your reason down into your newly discovered and articulated by Freud unconscious, cause that unconscious to turn off your reason, and render you vulnerable to becoming part of a mass society with others whose reasons have been similarly turned off and whose unconscious has been similarly activated. And from an aesthetic point of view, what I want you to notice is this picture. This is, this is a, a picture of Rural Electrification Administration 1937. At one level, it's an image of bringing radio to a rural place. But at another, it's an image of radio as a penetrating force. Penetrating. So it's a ray. It literally penetrates into this otherwise secure house. In that context, folks who were very good with, with media, particularly the radio, but also newspapers, were often seen as potentially fascists. Now, Hermann Goering is a, an obvious example. He was a fascist. Life magazine, 1935. You can see him speaking into the radio there. You know, a terrible fear that, that mass media had made fascism come alive through the enormous propaganda efforts of the Nazis in Germany. But at the same time, and this really surprised me when I started digging around, folks were concerned that Franklin Roosevelt was a fascist. And he was often called a fascist. It astonished me because of the New Deal. This may sound somewhat <laughs> contemporary, but. Um, his attempt to bring the government to work to end the Depression did, in fact, lead him partly to be called a fascist. His fireside chats made a lot of people very nervous. Roosevelt seemed to have the ability to work this channel, get past the reason 
of his audience, reach into their unconscious, and bind those unconscious desires to his political agenda. This made people very nervous. It made them nervous in a context that we've totally forgotten. Ladies and gentlemen, um, <laughs> I was astonished to discover that in the late 1930s, not only was demagoguery ubiquitous in the United States, but fascism was a real possibility. In March 1939, 22,000 Americans went to Madison Square Garden wearing homemade and otherwise put together Nazi uniforms for a rally celebrating the Nazi party and fascism in America in the hope that it would come here. Totally forgotten. Covered in Life magazine. Big, big feature in life. Totally forgotten. Did you, know there were, did, you know, did you know there were Nazi summer camps in the United States? I didn't. I had no, Camp Siegfried, Long Island, New York, sponsored by the Bundists, um, also covered by Life magazine. Um, I had never seen American families in, you know, sort of half undressed in Nazi uniforms um, sitting by the beach having picnics. Life magazine, 1937. Okay. I mention this because the fear that mass media um, generated in this period depends also on our understanding that, that demagoguery and fascism were, were viable public voices in this period. Um, you know, the, the, Catholic, the Catholic demagogue, Father Coughlin, um, he promoted the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, a famous proto-Nazi tract. Um, he had, according to a Gallup poll, 3,500,000 regular loyal listeners who believed in his views every week. That's, that's a powerful, powerful audience to have. Okay, so here's the fear. This is, this, this is an English example right here, the British, British fascists in the late 30s in Devon, England. You know, again, we tend to forget that we ever gave that salute, but we did. Um, so the fear was that mass media, as it had done in Germany, might do what it, it seemed able to do here in the United States. It might unite the unconscious desires of individuals who had been atomized by economic disorder abroad in the Weimar Republic of Germany, but also here during the Depression, and by the experience of World War I, it might unite those unconsciousness with the, with the unconscious of a deranged leader or organization. And if I go back, you can literally see the kind of fear of derangement. I mean, it's kind of comical, but it's real. You know, the fear is that somehow his madness can move through the wires into your unconscious and make you mad as well. And there was some evidence that madness was afoot. All right, this presents a tremendous problem for Americans at the start of World War II. There we are, World War II is getting up, underway. We need to do propaganda on our own people to get them excited to go to war. But how do we do it in a way that literally doesn't turn them into fascists? You know, there, there are robust arguments about this problem. There are arguments happening at the Museum of Modern Art. They're happening in Roosevelt's office. They're trying to figure out how do we do propaganda in a way that doesn't make them Nazis. And the answer turns out to be that we need to make modes of propaganda that promote democratic character, democratic personality. Okay. In this period, for sociologists and anthropologists in particular, particularly anthropologists associated with the culture and personality movement of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, Margaret Mead's husband, Gregory Bateson, um, who would later do a lot of things here at MIT, um, the psyche of the individual citizen and the psychological state of the nation that he or she inhabited were homologous. They mirrored one another. And so if you could find a way 
to orient the psyches of individual citizens in a democratic direction, you would begin to create a more democratic society. Um, one of the organizations that did this work theoretically, uh, sort of did this theoretical work in a lot of detail, was the Committee for National Morale, long forgotten but tremendously influential in their time. Founded by a, uh, an art historian named Arthur Upham Pope in New York, it included about 80, 80 members, um, really the American intellectual intelligentsia of the period, um, folks like Ruth Benedict, Gregory Bateson, Margaret Mead, psychologists like uh, Gordon Allport and Kurt Lewin, journalists Edmund Taylor and Ladislas Farago, um, all based in New York, all gathering often at or around the Museum of Modern Art. The Museum of Modern Art in this period is a real sort of think space for these folks. Um, the other part of the answer, the answer, the aesthetic part of the answer, emerges among Bauhaus refugees. In the 1930s, um, a series of refugees from Hitler have come over to the United States, most importantly from my perspective, Herbert Beyer. Herbert Beyer is a designer. He's the one who brought us the ubiquitous um, Bauhaus uh, typescript that is never capitalized, that many of us use now. He did that. Um, he also helped found the Aspen Institutes in Aspen, Colorado. He helped make Aspen the town that it is. He's a very influential figure, very low-key guy. He came here in 38. Uh, we're going to talk about him in a moment. But Bauhaus folks broadly, and especially Bayer, had developed in the 20s and early 30s in Europe a vision of using multiple media to make new, more whole human beings. In the Bauhaus formulation, the industrial era tended to fracture the individual psyche. In order to make that psyche whole and to help the person live more effectively and happily in the industrial world, media environments needed to be created in which wholeness could be experienced and practiced. That theory, I'm going to argue, was a really good thing to bring to the United States at this moment. Because the new man who they were promoting in Weimar Germany could become the new whole democratic personalities required by Americans at the start of World War II. So to give you a feel for Herbert Beyer, um, I do love this man. Um, OK. So Herbert Beyer. Herbert Beyer um, did a number of things. He, was a, he, he, he um, studied at the Bauhaus, went on to teach at the Bauhaus, focused on, on typography, but also on exhibition design. He was very active in ex exhibition design. In 1930, he developed a new mode of designing exhibitions that he deployed in uh, the Paris Exposition. He worked with Walter Gropius. Um, he came to believe that um, we should hang images or things that we were showing at all angles. So prior to this, with a couple of exceptions, Russian constructivists, a few others, um, almost all museum exhibitions of images worked where they would have an image, 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 image. You would walk around and present yourself to each image one at a time. Image, thought, image, thought, image, thought. You guys are a hard crowd, aren't you? Yeah, I can really feel it. <laughs> Dang. All right, I'm working it. All right, here we go. The point being, you were supposed to have a, a sort of eye-level sensorium, right? Okay. Bayer took a totally different view. Bayer argued first in 1930 and then in this very famous diagram from 1935 that in fact the individual should be surrounded by images. Embedded here, and this is very important for the things that are about to follow, was a non-Freudian, even an anti-Freudian psychology. It's a gestaltist psychology. Bayer and many others at the, at the Bauhaus believed that what helped make a person whole 
was making gestalten, or gestalting, you know, um, whole pictures inside the mind. And so what you needed to do was surround the individual with images from which he or she could choose those that were most meaningful for him or herself. And then that person would knit those images together into an internal image of the whole. They would become more whole, not only by seeing the image that they've created, but literally in the process of knitting it together. I want to emphasize a couple elements here that are very important. First, um, you surround the individual. That's the work of the designer. But then the individual selects, knits together, and at least in theory, experiences psychological wholeness and well-being. Anti-industrial well-being in the 20s and 30s, democratic well-being in the 50s. And that's where we're headed here. Okay, great. Byers' aesthetic, Byers' 1935 diagram, became the basis of Edward Steichen's installation designs in the 1940s. Uh, in 1942, Steichen was asked to create a propaganda exhibition for the Museum of Modern Art. And the, the person in charge at that time, Monroe Wheeler, uh, from the museum, paired him with Herbert Byer. Byer had been hanging around the museum since 1938, um, had designed a couple of exhibitions, um, wasn't rich, um, needed work, and went on to design this exhibition in terms of the principles set by his 1935 diagram. This is a show called Road to Victory, and it's absolutely astonishing. Again, to our eye, this kind of thing may not seem so strange. We are so accustomed to having media come at us from all sides and all angles. But in 1942, to walk into a museum exhibition and see images arrayed around you, to see Native Americans four times the size of life, to see huge canyons, to have that array of viewpoints thrown at you and surrounded, surround you was a very big deal indeed. Um, and it was remarked on in the press at the time. Um, so Road to Victory, I want to say a couple things about it that will set up the Family of Man piece. It is a road. It literally walks you through a set of images. Okay, it's very controlling. Family of Man will be much less controlling. I'm coming to that. But it's a very controlling space. And at the opening, um, you have um, Edward Steichen's brother-in-law, Carl Sandburg. He's written a little poem. He says, in the beginning was virgin land, and America was promises. And the buffalo by thousands pawed the great plains. And the red man, pause for it, gave over to an endless tide of white men in endless numbers. OK, we can hear some things with our ears today that they couldn't hear at that time. I, I don't think I need to go deep on that. But, but for the folks who were there, the experience of being surrounded by images and walked through them was extraordinary. Elizabeth McCausland from the Springfield Sunday Union, as a newspaper, said, this is the stuff of which we build a people and its traditions. The New York Times reporter Edward, Edward Jewell says, I think no one can see this exhibition without feeling that he is a part of the power of America. It is this inescapable sense of identity, the individual spectator identifying himself with the whole that makes the event so moving. Edward Alden Jewell showed no signs of knowing Gestalt theory, um, never engaged with that. But he recognized the exhibition, I think, in terms that Herbert Byer set out to design it in. Herbert Byer set out to design a structured environment within which a person would select meanings knit them together, and knit themselves into the fabric of the nation in their own imaginations, and so become a stronger, more committed American at the start of World War II. I want to argue that this is the beginning of a very different propaganda tradition. This is not mass media. 
This is something designed to produce a kind of individual, a seeming, a, at least the image of, an independent agency in the viewer. Um, this is an image over here. You'll see that that's from the uh, FSA, the Farm Security Administration. It says, war, they asked for it, and by God, they're going to get it. Over here, a couple of Japanese diplomats, December 7th, 1941. You can imagine how you might have felt if you walked into a corner and found yourself between these images. Very powerful experience. Okay. I want to jump now forward to the Cold War. And I want to argue that in the Cold War, in 1955, in the wake of the, uh, in the, wake of the, the Korean War, the psychological and political framework that drove the road to victory and that drove um, the understanding of the democratic personality was still very much in place. Um, 1941, Americans were preoccupied with con confronting fascism. In 1955, they were preoccupied with confronting communism. And if you read, if you, if you spend as many days alone with texts from that period as I do, um, you'll see that, that, that communism was imagined as a totalitarian force um, very similar to the ways that, that Nazism was imagined. You know, people imagined Nazis and called them during the war robots. Likewise, communists were seen as somehow mechanical, unfeeling, robotic, massified. Okay? Um, mass man was the, the great fear in 1941. By 1950, you had Theodore Adorno and his team articulating the, the meaning of the authoritarian personality. The authoritarian personality actually owes um, its existence to a whole lot of work done by Eric Fromm in the 1920s. We don't need to go into that history. Um, but what I want to say is that the authoritarian personality was imagined very much in terms set by the mass man of the 40s. The authoritarian personality, according to Adorno and Horkheimer and a series of others associated with them, um, was a personality that was particularly susceptible to propaganda. That's how they defined it. It was a person susceptible to propaganda who might then be easily massified, easily made to obey. They might have a desire to obey, but even if they didn't have a desire to obey, propaganda could trigger such a desire in them because they had that type of personality. Moreover, they argued that the authoritarian personality um, was both the basis and the product of authoritarian societies. So Horkheimer wrote a great deal about the German family. Uh, again, not, not well remembered. He argued that the German father was a brutal dictator, that the children of the German father were thus um, prone to managing life in a dictatorship and prone to seeking that sort of authority when they left the family. He argued that Hitler became that kind of a dictator and through the media was able to apply his power onto children who had left the family and thus transform Germany itself into a giant version of the authoritarian family. Okay, that idea travels into communism and into, Stal into the Stalinist era. Um, so that in 1954, for example, here's uh, President Eisenhower. President Eisenhower, um, very much like his colleagues in the 40s, is going to divide the world into two camps. A camp focused on American character and democratic personality versus a camp of totalitarians. He says in 1954 at Columbia University, the world, once divided by oceans and mountain ranges, is now split by hostile concepts of man's character and nature. Two world camps lie farther apart in motivation and conduct than the poles in space. Now, this is fascinating. Motivation and conduct as the centers of the American and the Soviet effort. I think that's really interesting. When, when the President of the United States is focused on the internal psychological lives of citizens here and abroad, that's an interesting state. This is not 
geopolitical, this is geopsychological. Um, okay. So what were these personalities? I've talked a little about the authoritarian personality. I want to go now to the nature of the democratic personality. Um, I want to start, I want to give you two quotations. The first comes from 1942. This is Gordon Allport, who's a psychologist at Harvard, um, probably the foremost theorist of the democratic personality in this period. And he's preoccupied in 1942 with doing two things, preserving the independence of the American citizen and uniting Americans against fascism. And he says, in a democracy, every personality can be a citadel of resistance to tyranny. In the coordination of the intelligence and wills of 100 million whole men and women lies the formula for an invincible American morale. A couple of key terms there. Personality. Personality can be a citadel of resistance. I think we see that with the internet, but more in a moment. Um, whole men and women, an invincible American morale. In 1951, political scientist Harold Laswell um, writes a short book called Democratic Character, designed to explain these things. And he says, um, the core of the, um, the democratic character is, this is all a quote, an open as against a closed ego. The democratic attitude toward other human beings is warm rather than frigid, inclusive and expanding rather than exclusive and constricting. We are speaking of an underlying personality structure which is capable of friendship, as Aristotle put it, and which is unalienated from humanity. I hope you're starting to hear premonitions of the hippies to come. Such a person transcends most of the cultural categories that divide human beings from one another and senses the common humanity across class and even caste lines within the culture and in the world beyond the local culture. Okay. This, this, is, this is an enormously powerful idea, that the democratic personality is one who feels a likeness with others. In the readings of 60s generation, of critics born in the 60s and coming of analytical age in the 80s, this is a problem. It's an attempt to universalize a kind of um, liberal subjectivity, a kind of, particularly a kind of white liberal subjectivity, a heteronormative su liberal subjectivity, and this is a problem. But I want to argue that that forgets the historical context that is so important. In 1951, Harold Laswell is writing in the wake only six years after the defeat of a Nazi regime whose entire enterprise was predicated on racism. To focus on the importance of the likeness of human beings is to deny fascism. Lest you think I exaggerate, I want to read you the first sentence um, from a book called The Nazi Primer. This is a handbook for the Hitler Youth. It's like the Boy Scout Manual for the Hitler Youth. It was actually reprinted in English in America in 1938. And it, this is the first sentence. The foundation of the national socialist outlook on life is the perception of the unlikeness of men. The unlikeness of men. To be a good Nazi, you need to see people as not like one another, as distinct from one another in particular ways, and as inferior and superior to one another. In this context, I want to argue, the family of man is a deep push back against fascism. Now, did it universalize? Absolutely. Was it heteronormative? Yeah. Um, did it not do a series of things that we might do today? Absolutely. But to understand its appeal, to understand why a quarter of a million people would come see it in New York, and seven million people would see it around the world, I think we need to remember that it is, it is a pushback against this idea of a world divided by race and caste. All right, let's go there. So if the problem of America's relationship to its potential enemies 
was configured in simultaneously psychological and political terms, as it was, then Steichen was blessed in that he still had the same form, the same installation form to work with that he had developed for his propaganda enterprises. The Family of Man was designed uh, not by Herbert Beyer, but by another person trained by Bauhaus folks, uh, architect Paul Rudolph. Paul Rudolph was the guy who developed um, the, the, muse the Museum of Modern Art's modernist building in the mid-century. He also did a whole lot of dormitories at Harvard, those really horrible graduate buildings that are all concrete. That's Paul Rudolph. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but, but he designed this exhibition very much in terms set by Herbert Beyer. Um, I'm going to argue that this surround space asks viewers to do a couple of things. It asks them to confront folks who are very much unlike themselves and to perceive them as like themselves. It asks them to move um, in an environment of images that are all sizes, they're at all places. Look at the positioning here, over their heads, big, small. There's actually one on the floor, though it's not in this picture and to choose among them and to knit together a gestalt, a picture of themselves in a world that is united across races, across times and places. And yes, ruled by the United States, but we'll come back to that. Okay. So the critics who have written mostly in the 80s but who are still writing today have argued that much of the power of this exhibition and much of its sort of bombastic side comes from its having been a narrative. And I think that's, that's not quite right. This is not like the road to victory. You didn't have to take just one way through the family of man. On the contrary, um, Paul Rudolph and Edward Steichen designed it in such a way so that you could actually be quite flexible. Now, in a broad way, it covered the life course. Um, I'm going to stand on a chair. Forgive me. I'll, I'll brush it off later. Um, you see number one. Number one is where you enter. As you move into the exhibition here, number three is um, a very hokey birth chamber. In, in which you actually have a hospital curtain hung, and a person walks in, you see pictures of babies being born. I know that sounds deeply hokey to us now. At the time, images of mothers giving birth were, were, were socially kind of controversial. I mean, it, you know, it's almost like showing porn in that period. Um, so, but he had it up, and people move through here. Um, they have mothers and children, children playing. So you know, you're sort of following the life course. The children are growing up. Okay, and then you enter this open area. This open area is really, really interesting. I want to go, let's see which way I want to go. Yeah, I want to go back. Okay, you can see it right here. This is the central open area. Um, I'm not sure you can see these well enough, but in this, on the central pillar, on your left, you have an Italian family, Italian peasant family. In the middle, you have an American family from, uh, I think, Appalachia. And on the right, you have a polygamist African family. So this show has been accused of being racist, it's of, of, sexual, of being sexually constraining. Okay, that's just not historically sensitive. The Italians had been our enemies a decade before. They had been fascists. African Americans were still under extraordinary prejudice in the United States. 1955 is the same year. It's only a few months before um, the bus strike, um, not long before the Montgomery uh, boycotts. Those are Africans being held up along with our former enemies, the Italians, and to their left, our former enemies, the Japanese, as entirely on par with the Americans in the middle. These folks are being held up as folks for us to identify with. And not only are they being held up for, as folks for us to identify with, they're being held up 
in their own condition. Those, that's a polygamist. <laughs> We're going to come to this. I mean, it, it, that's a big deal in America in 1955. Those are the Japanese, the same Japanese who, on December 7th, 1941, bombed Pearl Harbor, who are being held up now as having families like ours, as being like us. So you could spend some time in that central area. And then you had a lot of choices about where you moved next. I'll just point out a couple of the features here. Um, this circular area is actually um, a, a children's kind of push wheel, you know, the kind of thing you push around, and has pictures of children playing Ring Around the Rosie from around the world. Um, let's see, what else do we have? We have themes like death, loneliness, grief, human relations, religion, hard times, and famine. The only place where you had to go was at the end. At the very end, you had to pass through that, that channel that you see at the top, and that took you by the H-bomb explosion. And once you were past the H-bomb explosion, you saw the United Nations, you saw children playing, and finally, at the very end, you saw two children climbing up out of a kind of darkened um, bower with a little sign underneath that said, um, there's a world under your footsteps still to be made. And at, at that moment, the show was extraordinarily heavy-handed. It really was almost like a greeting card. Um, it was so heavy-handed. But that's the only place you are otherwise free to move. And what I want to argue is that um, you're being asked in this exhibition to experience a freedom of movement, a freedom of association, within a visual world constructed of many races, people from around the globe, many communities, very different than the ones that you are likely to be in touch with, at a time when the future of the world, thanks to nuclear weapons, seems to depend on it. You are being asked to stop being so bigoted, to see others as like yourself. Steichen had an, a very elaborate theory of how this was supposed to work psychologically. Images were meant to be mirrors, mirrors in which you saw others as being like yourself. You were literally supposed to see in the image yourself. At one point, very early in the show, for about the first week, he actually hung a mirror on the wall to make this point. And then he and Wayne Miller decided that was hokey, and they pulled it out. But you can see here, these are images from the United States Information Agency photographers from Munich, Paris, and Berlin as the show traveled, that this idea of mirroring was very much in folks' minds. Um, a little girl in Paris seeing herself in the great sea of humanity some Germans there on the right. Um, again, I think it's especially important in the context of, of the international export of this work and in, and in the context of a kind of post-war recuperation of Germany into the American sphere that we see that the exhibition provides a context for people to, be, to imagine themselves as welcomed back into the human family after the atrocities of, of the war. Um, German responses to the show, which were very carefully chronicled by the USIA, um, suggest that this actually worked. Um, it's very interesting. The headline that dominated the German press when the show came through was, um, Menschen wie du und ich, um, people like you and me. That's quite a thing to say in a country that had just recently been organized around the unlikeness of men. Okay, um, so. Um, in other words, these were mirrors, but they were not mirrors designed to reflect the whole of the person. Rather, they were designed to help you see yourself in certain terms. The point I'm trying to get at here is that on the one hand, these are very open, liberating environments of choice, selectivity. Um, they're very egalitarian, intellectually at least. 
yet at the same time, the things with which you are to identify are being selected for you and are being quite controlled. And you see folks moving through the space here. Um, this is a German family. Imagine 10 years after World War II, perhaps a German veteran, having gone to war, risked his life to preserve racial distinction, um, to preserve the racial superiority of the Nazi race, the Teutonic race, being asked to view a naked, polygamous African family and see them as like him or herself. That's quite a thing to ask of a, of a people in that period. And it was very, very well received and I think a very powerful image. So I want to step back now a little bit and open this out toward our own moment. The family of man um, represented in its own time an immersive, surround-oriented alternative to mass media propaganda. If mass media penetrated the unconscious, lit it up, came inside you, was a kind of penetrating, dominating, domineering force, things like the family of man were very different. They were surrounds. They gave you freedom. You could walk among things. You could choose among images that were meaningful to you. You didn't need to fear the Freudian psychology. You could instead embrace some more gestaltist alternative. And you could really be sort of under your own steam in a, in a world that pretended to be global and universal. And that really is a difference. At the same time, however, this family of man structure, I think, represents the emergence of a new mode of self-management and a new mode of control. The Hermann Goering propaganda, mass media, mass man mode is the one that we critique most often in our own time. It's the one we constantly say we're pushing against. The notion that there's a leader or an organization instrumentally delivering messages to us and making us believe things is the thing that we fear. But at the same moment that this surround provides a liberating alternative to that mode of, of communication, it also constrains our behavior in very interesting ways. Power is all over this space, but it's over it in a different way. Power is the power to select, to aggregate, to curate, as the new media term has it. That's very powerful. You create a space in which people are free, but they're free to look in mirrors that you've drawn pictures in for them. You've helped them imagine themselves in terms that you've set. And that's a, that's a very distinct mode of power. In some ways, you're harnessing their desires for community, for agency, for the ability to make choices, and directing them toward a much wider, but still quite limited, set of options. And I want to suggest that that mode of power is the one that we inhabit today. It, it's, a, it's a dominant mode today. It's not the only one, but it's a dominant mode today. Traditional propaganda, mass media propaganda still very much exists. This is very differential across geographic spaces. But one of the things that my book is about is the, the absolute ubiquity of these three-dimensional spaces in which media is deployed in a surround-oriented manner to both enable and constrain choice. And I want to suggest the ways in which media, as they enter our physical spaces, as they bond with architecture, as they get embedded on the back of the seats in a plane or a car, 
are demanding that we engage with them in ways much like Edward Steichen demanded we engage with the images on the wall. This is a Facebook page. My Facebook page, according to the makers of Facebook, is designed to be a mirror of me and my social world. Facebook is offering me new terms in which to make myself up, in which to recognize myself as a member of a larger humanity, a kind of humanity whose terms they've already circumscribed. So that process of circumscription and solicitation of identification strikes me as a mode of media power that we engage with persistently. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this book. And I want to conclude with a rumination. And here, here's where I, I really would actually like as much help as possible. If this is, in fact, a new mode of power, how do we interrogate it? Um, I think I've got a couple of terms in play with the family of man. I'm going to read them to you. And I'd be very grateful if you have others or um, ways of thinking about these. Um, interactivity, solicitation, mirroring, self-production. All of these are new modes of power. At the same time, I think they come out of a historical time um, that we need to remember was also liberatory. To give you one feel for that, and it's a quotation I wish I'd read a little bit earlier, but I want to be sure you hear it anyways. I want to return us to 1955 and Barbara Morgan, who was a photographer in this period, who goes to see the family of man. And she describes the power of its installation, the power of the surround for her, and the power that it has to awaken in her a sense of identification with others very much unlike her. She's a white middle American. She says, in comprehending the show, the individual himself is also enlarged. For these photographs are not photographs only, they are also phantom images of our co-citizens. This woman, into whose photographic eyes I now look, is perhaps today weeding her family rice paddy or boiling a fish in coconut milk. Can you look at the polygamist family group and imagine the different norms that make them live happily in their society, which is so unlike, yet like, our own? Empathy with these hundreds of human beings truly expands our sense of values. And this, ladies and gentlemen, I think is the paradox of our time. It's a paradox. Facebook simultaneously enhances my empathy with others, my engagement with others, maybe, even as it constrains the terms in which I understand them. And this liberation and constraint, I would argue, is, is characteristic of our moment, and I'd like to, to find some ways to think about it. I'll stop there and ask for questions. Thank you. Oh, we're going to Mike. Great. Yeah, we're going to the mic, not for amplification as much as recording. So, questions? Thanks. Hi, Fred. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, you mentioned that the initial run of this show at MoMA attracted a quarter million visitors in, in the space of three months. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. Um, it's, it's over several thousand visitors a day. So I'm wondering if, if you've done any work into sort of how access to the exhibit was controlled um, and then how that changed the, the patterns of reception of the people who were in the exhibit. I mean, was it waves of, of uh, visitors that were admitted in, in sort of segments or were they letting people in as people went out? 
were there busier parts of day? How might that have affected it's reception? It's a great question. No, it's, it's a great question. Um, so I've, I've worked with the archival materials um, at the Museum of Modern Art, which are all that I know that exist. And I, I know there's some folks here who, who know the archival record on this really well, so if I'm wrong, please tell me. But the only records that I know that exist of that process are inside the Museum of Modern Art. I've been through them. Um, and they, aren't, they don't go into it in that level of detail. They do keep track of the numbers of people who come through every day. Um, they do talk about how there were people at the front door, outside the front lobby, and at the back um, controlling things, but they don't say what the control process was actually like or how they admitted folks. Um, what they're focused on is that um, when people get to that front lobby, they get a pamphlet um, with a, a, an expression by Carl Sandburg and um, a brief statement by Steichen about why, they, why, they, why he did the show. That's, that's the main thing that they're focused on, and the sheer numbers. They're, they're amazed. The biggest show before this in, in MoMA history is Road to Victory, and that had 80,000 people in the same time period. More than in New York. Is that right? Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Per day, it were more than in, than in New York, strangely. Really? That's wild. I didn't, I didn't know that. Of course, yeah. yeah. So I'm hoping Maria will say more. Maria knows the European reception better than anyone. So. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you, you talk about the MoMA being sort of this, the center of a certain kind of politics, which certainly goes back further back to the FSA exhibit in the yep. mid-30s and Absolutely. so forth. Can you talk about the, the museum politics with, with the Museum of Natural History being famous in that period for being right-wing and being a center of eugenics and, oh, really, and different kind that. of media? With, with, with dioramas and so forth. The head of, the, the, head of the, the, the Natural History Museum was one of the leading eugenicists, and he used to sponsor conferences and, and right. organize eugenic societies. Did not know this at all. Who, and who was Julian Huxley, or which was, was Fairchild, I think his name okay. no, Did, uh, was. But, Fairchild? But it was the, they, they organized a counter uh, uh, against the normal anthropology society. They had their, and it was limited to white males. Of, Utter, of, utterly riveting, because of course Margaret Mead would ultimately be housed there, and and she was anything but a white male. Right. You know, and and the, and the the people that she brought in to work on things, you know, Ruth Benedict was 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 her her teacher. Ruth Benedict in this period wrote a ferocious attack on eugenics and race, um, about race. It, 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 it was an attack on the false science of race. It's an amazing book. So I, I didn't I didn't know that about the Museum of Natural History. I'll, I'll just go dig on that. That's neat. Thanks. Um, I think this is a, a great argument, and I really enjoyed the, the patterns you. that you've seen. That's great. I thrive <laughs> on praise, so thank you. That's great. I'll wait for the button now, but thank you. I needed no, that. I, and, and I think I wanted to ask a question about form, because I think that, great. and I wonder if this comes out a little bit more in your book, because I think that while I see these parallels, I think one of the things that interests me about the digital and feels very different as opposed to an architectural uh, uh, exhibition is it, it seems like that ability to see yourself in the medium is um, so much about the ability to personally construct that Facebook page or to, or to personally, to be part yeah. of the architecture of that form, of that medium. Oh. And it seems like in the museum, you know, this is something that's still coming from outside and maybe coming to you as fact in a way that um, you don't get in the digital form. So I, I really want to challenge that view. I think that okay. that's a really good point. I, I, I want to kind of show a picture and then talk us through the different time frames involved. Um, hmm, try to find the right picture for it. Well, this will do for now. Um, so, so I <sighs> see it's helping me. Um, I want to go to. 
All right, that's fine. Um, I, what I would actually argue is that, that um, within, within obvious limits, um, the notion that we, we, we aid in the construction of or substantially co-construct um, the mirrors into which we gaze online is, is an ideological fiction constructed by those who build and sell us mirrors. Um, you know, Facebook is, you know, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm welcome to contribute, but it's very different than my degree of contribution, say, in my email list, which is, which is mu a much more intimate space for, for exchange with me. I'm invited to construct a profile in terms that have been set for me, and the, and the contributions that I make, in the Facebook case in particular, will now be wholly owned by the corporation that has invited me to do that. Um, but I think your central point, that you do feel as though you are co-constructing that, is very important. And I, I, I think that that actually was an, was an enormously exciting element in the family of man. So, so it's hard for us to see, because we're so used to engagement. This looks to us now like a space in which you're going and looking at things that have been set for you. But in its own time, right? remember that they're coming out of a time when it's image, 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 image. Where it was, and this feels wild, almost like a happening. I mean, this is, look, Joe, there's, there's, there's a couple like us on a swing. I mean, really, it's, it's a much wilder experience for people who see it at the time than we can remember. And they feel very much um, freed in the museum space. They feel like they're collaborating. You see this in the reviews of the show in New York in particular. You know, I walked through and I went this way and I went that way and I felt like part of the whole and I saw that I was like these other people. And you see it in the European reviews. I know the German one's better than the others, but you, you very much see it there too. So I, I think that the notion of co-construction is something done architecturally in buildings and architecturally online to ideological ends. And, the, and the, 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 what you're describing is, in fact, the ancestor of this. Thank you. Sure. I'm going to just use speakers or, or whatever, moderators' privilege yeah, to yeah. jump in. And just and continue the, the, the line of argument a little bit. I, I wouldn't disagree with your critique of, of Facebook at all. Okay. But I, one other way to sort of frame this, and, and I'm sure it's in your book, but if you think about the media scape in the early 50s, the post-war period. So we have television by 55, fairly pervasive yep. Um, yep. televisual presence. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. The, the boom of the illustrated uh, magazine, which starts in the mid-30s, but after the war is bigger than ever, yep. allows, gives, I mean, I was just listening to a lot of your descriptors about how people are engaging with these images. They're seeing themselves. Well, we can go out and find the brand of magazine at this point in the post-war era that represents the lifestyle I live, the, the, my, my generation, whatever. In other words, there's a magazine for me, and it's on the newsstands. And it may not be life, but it may be Sports Illustrated or popular mechanics, but there's uh, the, 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 the plurality of forms that, that now exist in the magazine, illustrated magazine world, are much greater than ever before. Mm -hmm. TV as a pervasive medium as opposed to the kind of intentionality behind film that would have preceded it in this era. All to say that, that one could read this through the lens of a new marketing discourse right, yeah. that is, that is the, 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 the semi-personalized mass media, the lifestyle, not personalized, yeah. the lifestyleized media forms of the of the 50s. And in that sense, Facebook has a sort of different twist. I wouldn't argue that it's not a commercial it. construction, but it does enable a kind of personalization. It it's really is just my friends. The parameters are fixed, blah, blah, blah. But it really is only people I know, at least on, on my site. Yeah. Um, whereas here, I've got to look for a resonant lifestyle as opposed to my personal world. So can I, can I, can I, can I open up with that? Because I think, I think it's, yeah, it's, that, that's really neat. Um, I, wanna, I, I think your point on Facebook, thank you. That was great. Thanks. No, it's fine. Um, I think your point on Facebook is well taken, and I just just agree with it. Um, 
I take up the commercial side of this extensively in a different chapter. And that chapter is actually on, on Moscow in 1959 and Brussels 58, but particularly Moscow, where this was shown and where it caused a lot of anxiety. And I, I talk a lot in that chapter about the relationship of humanist discourse to consumer discourse. Um, you know, you know, at the same moment that Eisenhower is talking about um, a world divided into two psychological camps, he's about to start promoting something called the people's capitalism. And that's going to go around the world. And, and this is very much part of that. So I, I do see that. I want to, although, take issue with it. I'm just I'm reading this on my feet. I haven't researched this. So I'm going to just wing it and see. I want to take issue, though, with your, your take on magazines. And I think that you know, this style of photography has been wild, widely maligned as kind of um, bourgeois, as dull, as flat, as hyper-realistic. And you know, there are no abstractions in this show at all. Um, but so, so, so set against abstract art imagery, it makes it look pedestrian and bourgeois. But set against advertising imagery, in this moment, I want to argue that it makes it look authentic and mirror-like. I actually think that you can precisely find magazine pictures that speak to your lifestyle, but you can't help but recognize those as a lifestyle magazine, not quite as you. The folks who see this say, I see myself here, not I see somebody doing something I like to do. It's not Sports Illustrated. It's really not. It's something quite different. It's, 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 it's expressing itself as a kind of universal humanist impulse in which I can see myself. So I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that while on the one hand, the media universe in which people were operating was indeed very much larger and would have included images of things that were like themselves, the particular realist aesthetics deployed here in these images um, work to distinguish them from commercial discourse. But it's interesting to see where the photographers come from, because there's a huge number of folks yep. doing the images here that are also making their money by working for life and look. Right? So, 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 so the number's smaller than you'd think. Okay. That's actually another one of the, I would argue, historical fallacies associated with the show. I mean, it is true that there are a number of folks associated with life. The, the largest group of images, I think, came from the FSA, um, also from the American military. There are a lot of American military images here. Um, but it also, the show also included you know, Ansel Adams, Diane Arbus, Robert Frank, I mean, a whole lot of folks, Bill Brandt, who um, we associate with high art movements to come. Um, I don't have the numbers on the life photography. I, I don't want to say that as strongly as I think I just said it. Um, but but, I, but I, I know that, that it's a much more diverse group than has been previously credited. Um, two things. The first, real quick. Um, I found it really fascinating, the language about the role of radio in fascism. And what I found particularly fascinating about it was that it's almost identical to some of the language that was used to talk about Radio Milkalin uh, during the Rwandan genocide. Huh. And it's very, very interesting to see how that question of radio as infecting the minds of people who then behave as automata has sort of fallen out of discourse in talking about Europeans or Americans, mm. but does seem to be allowable in the context of Sub-Saharan yeah. Africa. So I right. just fascinated by it. I plan on digging into it. A really good point. Very yeah. helpful on that one. I, on, on your Facebook analysis, uh -huh. um, so I, I think one of the critical things to think about is that in constructing these surrounding environments where you're getting the gestalt and you're, you're sort of picking from it, the creators are doing this with a very explicit political agenda. The explicit agenda of Facebook is to keep you watching. And, and in fact, yeah. it keeps shifting mm -hmm. on you yeah. in the hopes of, of having you keep watching. And if you talk to the folks who build Facebook, 
um, they'll tell you that they have algorithms that have figured out that, yeah. you know, you will look at the photographs of your ex-girlfriend. And so, you know, when your ex-girlfriend's photograph comes up there, it shows up very high in your feed because that's how it generates the clicks and so that's it goes how with that there. happened, thank you. And, and so yes. I, 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 I'm being as honest as you are about the 20s and 30s movie stars. So I appreciate uh, that. So I, I'm sort of interested in, I, I would love to sort of think about the ways in which you can take a space like Facebook and take on an agenda like the family of man. Uh -huh. um, but that's so far, it seems to me, yeah. From Fair. the politics of what's being generated, I wonder whether the analogy sort of holds up in the digital space because the motivation is so fundamental. Yeah, okay, so that's, so, so that's a great question. I, have, I, I feel thoroughly hoisted on my own petard. And my, the, my petard, the petard that I... The, no, no way my intention. No, no, no that's fine. No, I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying the sensation, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, no, but I, I think what you're saying is that it's, it's a little historically irresponsible to make a jump of 50, 60 years because things get, disappear in there that are important. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, I'm doing it partly to be provocative, partly also because I want folks to care about the 50s and I'm, and I'm a little nervous they won't care if I just show them the 50s which is wrong but um, let me let me let me play with it for a moment and see if I can't do something useful yeah. with it so I've sometimes thought that algorithms amplify styles of interaction that exist before the algorithms are written so so these folks were, were very aware that, that this would be a one-time show although they were fascinated by people who came back and back of which there were many um, but, but the, the mode of seeing that they were promoting was meant to be lifelong. You were meant to leave this exhibition and experience the social world as you had experienced the exhibition. You were meant to select from among diverse people to build a community that simultaneously allowed for your individual independence and your collective um, gathering. Um, and you, you were supposed to carry it with you. It wasn't a real-time persistent interaction system as Facebook is. But, but I guess I kind of think that the real-time interaction modes that Facebook has developed are built off of um, cultural modes of interaction that predate it substantially. And while I've made a big leap here, I think given, given room enough in time, I could probably march through the 60s, 70s, 80s and get us toward Facebook. Um, but I'm going to run away with just an assertion now. Does that help? Oh, my. At least it was an interesting speculation. It, it, it's a fun argument that I enjoy continuing. Excellent. Good. Perfect. Thanks. Hi. Thanks a lot. Uh, you know, really interesting. And uh, what's that? Ian? I am Ian. Hi. Yeah, I'm hi. Ian Condry. Yeah, Thank you. Great. It's nice thanks. to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> From a distance. Yeah. Uh, no, I really enjoyed it. And, and I, I, my question has to do with I, maybe it's the same thing, and it's always cheating to ask historians to do. You know, bring it up to date. But I, I, I want to push, but, but you've done it. And I'm, I'd like I'm, to push that to angle Good. a little bit more, too. You know, one of the things that comes out is thinking about this personality uh, idea, right? And Freud, and even personality as culture, and culture as personality writ large was very big in this time. And, yep. and this idea that sort of what goes on in somebody's head then is what speaks, you know, is the way we can understand the larger world. And, and you know, it, when you're going with the surround, I thought you were going to go somewhere different, I guess. Oh, and, and so, okay. and one of Where the did things, you think I was going to go? Well, I'll, yeah. I'll say, and so yeah. what, what I was thinking is that, you know, with this, this personality, it, that it, it comes down to a kind of personal choice, right? That there's, you move in and you can sort of find yourself in the space and, uh, and it has a certain idea. And it seems to me when I'm thinking about Facebook and new media, uh, that I feel there's, there's another aspect to it. That it's not just that there's a, a wider variety of things that we can choose from, the uh -huh. image of the cloud and the internet and everything out there, but that who we are is increasingly defined by who we know and by our network. Um, and it seems to me there's a kind of interesting, if I was trying, I was trying to figure out what is the dynamic 
today between fascism and authoritarian personality and what, how does it look today? And one, it's, one of the dynamics seems to me, this question of the self-interested, competitive, survival of the fittest, a greedy uh, individual as sort of economic man and democratic citizen in a sense of yeah. choosing what's right. best for you right. is how we're going to figure out right. what's best for right. everybody. Compared to, you know, these uh, a range of, of things coming out in a bunch of different fields, like Steven Pinker talking about how evolution is making us more compassionate and Benkler saying it's, it's cooperation, not competition, that's made our successes that we have and and this social network theory about how we're influenced by our three degrees <laughs> networks and uh -huh. that's what matters and it, it seems to me one of the maybe a difference uh -huh. uh, is that this this Facebook world whatever it is it gives us a, a sense not only of that we choose who we are that that's not but that what we get from everybody else in in not quite mass media terms but much smaller network terms is what matters. Uh, and that the democratic surround as an idea seems to reproduce this individual and that it's still a matter of a kind of individual choice whereas I kind of feel like the, the movement of the day is among our students to feel themselves as part of this living, breathing network. And in fact, that's where they live as much as I am what I choose. Okay. Uh, and me, and so I, I don't know that's where, great. where that might fit in, uh, that's but that's great. what I was struck So let, let, me, let me go there. I, I think that part of the distinction that you're arguing for is an artifact of, of, how I've made, of what I've built the analysis on. I've built the analysis on, particularly for this talk, a particular exhibition in a particular space to be experienced discreetly and then left behind. But, but in, the, in the broader book, at, at great length, I go into um, how the democratic personality and the media forms designed to promote it were designed to promote it precisely to create a simultaneously individuated individual and a kind of clear collective that didn't violate the boundaries of the individual but let the individual live in egalitarian fraternity with others like him or herself. And, and that's very distinct from the, the fascist model of community in which one lives like a bundle of sticks, fasci, um, like a bundle of sticks bound together in, in a oneness. Um, and, and so, so I, I think I would like to say that um, the kind of communities that you describe your students experiencing themselves living in and contributing to are precisely the kinds of communities that these folks imagined and prescribed. Um, and it, you know, Margaret Mead said something that has really stuck with me. She said, you know, if we succeed in building the world we're calling for, this, she said this in 44, um, we won't recognize it and we won't be able to live in it. And, and I, I think that's exactly right. I think she was exactly right. I think that, that, that you know, this, what you've just described is precisely the kind of egalitarian fraternity folks wanted to create. Now, I think there are enormous problems with that. Let me give a couple of them. In this moment, that kind of fraternity works within a larger world that is controlled, regulated, governed, and managed by the American state with an army to protect you from your enemies. You don't have to do that work. You can be in your little network because the state and its corporations, which are hand in glove in this period, as in ours, are, are, are doing that work for you. Um, I, I think that that turn, um, politically, culturally, intellectually, leads to a quiescence, an illusion that in fact at the individual level, your psychological well-being is in fact equal and homologous with the well-being of the nation. I think that takes us down a very bad road. It's a road in which we imagine that because me and my friends are doing good, the world's okay. And it's not. Well, the racial politics of this exhibit in, in racialized America in this period would you right. know, just reinforce that, that stance, right? It was harmony in the exhibit, but... Not anywhere outside it, that's right. 
Great talk. Um, Thanks. So uh, I guess what I was uh, curious about is uh, the phrase in the title, which I, I loved, was the politics of attention. Mm -hmm. And this notion that attention has a politic to it, mm -hmm. and that uh, at some level we're competing for attention, or certain things compete for attention, and mm -hmm. they succeed in different ways, and so forth. And I didn't quite pick up where the political. I mean, I think as William just said, there 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 are political overtones to all this. But okay. I was expecting some kind of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, explanation or exploration of, you know, some kind of uh, competition for attention in these spaces and so forth. Let, so me, let, me, let, me, let me take a shot at that and, and try to do it directly. So, so I think that competition for attention um, isn't actually um, the way that attention is politicized in this period. Um, I, I think that this is a surround in which there, there isn't competition. There's, there's the possibility of selection. What, what I think has been arranged here is an array of invitations for your attention that are, in the most broad sense perhaps, inviting you to engage in a mode of paying attention that is distinct from the mode of paying attention that you would apply to a mass medium in the period, and that is self-consciously constructed as such. So, so this idea, you know, Steichen and Bayer and then later Rudolph are, are self-consciously saying, we're not going to do mass media. We're going to create a space in which you are invited to pay attention in terms set by your own desires to objects arrayed for you by us. So it's a set of attentional practices that in turn have a, an explicit political agenda. By engaging in these pra practices, you will practice the psychological aperceptual skills on which the democratic personality depends and through it the future of the democratic state. So it's not politicized in the sense of managing attention or limiting attention or, or controlling the competition for attention. Rather, it's, um, it's creating structures that solicit ways of paying attention that are associated with ways of being, which are themselves seen as the basis for a new kind of society. So it's not only what you're paying attention to, it's how you're paying the attention. Uh, a, a lot of passing discussion of this exhibit pairs it in a dialectic with the Americans. Oh, huh, huh. I can go there. If, if, yeah. Please. Yeah. So, so I, I, that's interesting. I haven't seen that, that much comparing it to the Americans. The Americans is a little bit later. Um, Robert Frank has a couple images that I don't believe run in the Americans that, that, that do run in this, in this show. Um, you know, the Americans was a much more explicitly dark collection of images. You know, the front page of the book, um, you know, it was mostly seen as a book. The front, the front cover of the book was an image of a bus in New Orleans, I believe. You know, white folks in the first half, black folks in the back half. Um, it, was, it, was a, a, it was a collection of images made by a Swiss photographer that came into the United States and said, see, 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 you may imagine yourselves as egalitarian and non-racist, but see, see, and it was very powerful and very controversial. People were pissed off. Yeah, very unhappy, very unhappy. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you know, the family of man is a space in which you can imagine yourself as egalitarian without having actually be egalitarian. Yeah, but, but I would argue that that's also a mark of our own contemporary moment. You can imagine yourself acting in a public space as you post to your Facebook when you're doing nothing of the kind. I Hey, Maya. <laughs> well, give it a try. Yeah, great, go for it. Um, so you're really talking about the politics had a political agenda of the exhibition itself as it was in the States. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how much of it 
changed when it was starting okay. to travel around. Okay. You mentioned indeed that it was being bought up or by the USIA with all the sponsorship that came with it. Yeah. It could be changed. I mean, they had the authority to change the whole exhibit as they wanted to. And Steichen to. collaborated with that. Steichen helped pull images out. Yeah. yeah, but also because they were asked to do that. Yeah. Like oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No pictures being based in, with anything referring to Israel right. when they were doing it in mm. Beirut, etc. So, I mean, I would say that maybe then the whole political agenda, as you describe for being uh, in, the, in the exhibit in the States, really changed the moment that also the whole idea behind it by the USIA and the, their political agenda was, uh, I, I thought, a little bit different than the one probably by Steichen and Museum Great. of Modern Art. So, so, so I, I have a long chapter on this that I literally just put my pen down on three days ago. So I'll try not to inflict it on you. But, 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 but I, I would take a slightly different take. Um, inside the USIA, as, as I'm sure you know, there was a lot of arguing about how we ought to do propaganda. The, the old debates about instrumental versus non-instrumental modes of persuasion run all through the USIA in this period. And the things that you're describing, taking the family of man over, overseas, selecting images that would not offend locals, making sure that um, images got pulled, but deciding to keep some images, like for instance, the Warsaw Ghetto image of the boy with the hands when it went to, was shown in Germany. Um, those kinds of decisions you know, were made um, by folks who had an instrumental concern, who wanted to use the exhibition in an instrumental manner. At the same time, lots of USIA officials um, believed ingenuously or disingenuously, I can't always tell from the correspondence, that, that the exhibition would do for foreign nationals what it had done for Americans. That it would, in fact, allow them to imagine a new kind of world, a world in which they, too, could be part of an international family watched over by a paternal American state. And so, so um, the, the, um, so I, I have a name for this, and I write about it a lot. I call it therapeutic nationalism. You know, we, we, we do a therapeutic kind of work overseas. Um, while simultaneously expressing our national interest by healing others. We make others healed. Okay. You and I, you and I are going to be on email conversation about this. I can feel it. I can feel it. So that's, kind of, that's, that's the title of the chapter that I just finished. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be back and forth on this a bit. But, but, but so I, I, think there's a, I think it's a site of struggle, actually, within the USIA. Some of the reception side. Yeah. Um, then I think it's interesting how you know you see it from the as you looked at the evaluations from the American side that they look at well, for instance, what did it do for the goals for the USIA? Yep. Uh, so with a strong foreign policy um, perspective. Yeah, very strong. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to see that people really, at least in the Netherlands, being the most critical country when it came to race relations in 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 the U.S. Strangely enough. Huh. Having still having their colonies in Indonesia right, yeah. and, and, and Suriname, yeah, but still. Had some problems with some Jews in their and own so country during the war. Really, but, they yeah. really read it through it in a way, saying, huh. wow, this is not going about anything about communism. Now we can trust the US that they are in, on the route to a better world. So, yeah. especially one photograph where you see a boy, a white boy, and a hmm. black boy together, they yeah, say, right. well, you know, there's still a chance that they're going to work right, it out. Right, so. right. and I, I, I don't know if you found this in, in your reading, but I would speculate, I, I guess, with no evidence at all, that, that in that image of the white boy and the black boy together in America, um, you had an anchoring image for a reimagining of what Holland could be in, in, in the wake of the war. I mean, Holland has had a very ugly history during the war, um, a history of you know, allowing for the oppression of Jews in, in major cities. But that was the interest. Yeah, but that was 
at the time, also in the States, I think they blamed it more on the Germans than on the Dutch. Right. Okay. Uh, so that's yeah, yeah. It's yeah, <laughs> it's complicated. But but, uh, but 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 I think the United States. Yeah. Thank you. I think the United States, without dissing Holland. Sorry about that. Um, it was. But but I think the United States was for many Europeans um, a place to think about things that were hard to think about inside their own countries. That you could you could knock you could knock American racism because it was so self-evident and clear. We had slavery and, and and America in some ways became a country to think with, for Europeans. Yeah, the that's US all US I wanted to say. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. So, other other questions? Well, in that case, um, Fred, thanks very much. Thank um, you very much, and thank yeah. you for coming in the last week of the quarter. Gosh.